0: Interesting, I always find it interesting the way uh, the scrolls were. You can see in your quarterly a picture of a scroll with seven seals, but uh, really it didn't look quite like that. And then as you unrolled it a little bit, you came to another one. It was, it's almost as if the scroll, when they started on one end, they, they wrote a section of it, rolled it up, and then put put a a wedge of wax to hold that part shut and then wrote another section, rolled it up a little bit more and put another wedge of wax to hold that part shut and uh, continued on until they got to the very end. And so as the scroll is being unrolled, that's why you have one seal and then another seal and another seal because they're unrolling the scroll. Okay. Can you picture this with me? Uh, I'm not an artist. I could, I could try, but, um, Imagine, uh, with me, if you would, you got the scroll, right? Imagine after the first seal is opened or broken, they would actually have to break it to open it, right? Uh, imagine that you, that, uh, you got to a spot here where it was like it was glued shut. You see that? And in order to unroll the scroll any further, they have to break it. Uh, they used wax or clay or glue. It was just basically something to hold it there. Uh, and that way you would only read the scroll one bit at a time. So you have seven of these in this scroll. And in Revelation chapter 6, we actually go through six of them. Uh, so let's read uh, 6, 1, and 2. Someone read Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Okay. So our first seal that's open, you see what? A white, a white horse, right? Where else in Revelation is there a white horse? It's in Zechariah, but where else in Revelation? In Revelation, in the book of Revelation, where else is there a white horse? Do you know? Can anyone find it? Go see if you can find it. What is a white horse? And how is it described in the book of Revelation? I love this because, you know, we can use the Bible to interpret itself. And uh, that gives us the whole context for all of these seven seals. Did we find it yet? Revelation 19, verse what? Verse 11. You're right. Revelation 19, verse 11. That's the other place we see a white horse. And this one actually has more description than we find in Revelation chapter 6. So, if you would read for me, Micah, since you found it. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. Alright, so is there any question as to the description of the rider of this horse? Who is this? Jesus, right? I mean, obviously, we can see it all the way through, right? His name uh is called the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God, right? Um, out of his mouth goes the sharp sword, which is also the Word of God, right? Um, and uh, it's, as you see this picture, if the rider on the white horse is Jesus, what would the white horse represent? Purity? The color white represents purity, right? So what I don't know how to phrase this question. Maybe I'll just share with you my thoughts on this because I don't know how to ask it. If Jesus is on a white horse, how is Jesus' word going through, if we go back to Revelation chapter 6, going forth conquering and to conquer the world? How is Jesus doing that right now through his church, right? So this white horse that we see in Revelation chapter six is God's pure church. Isn't that beautiful to think of? Um, God's pure church, conquering and to conquer. And, you know, if we take this principle, there's a principle that we apply in prophecy uh, when we use the historical interpretation of prophecy, and that is the prophecy always begins in the time of the prophet, right? So the prophecies of Daniel begin in the time of Daniel, right? And you can see how they were fulfilled all throughout history, and you see that principle over and over in Daniel. So when we get to Revelation, the prophecy of the seven seals begins at the time of the prophet John, uh, which really he's writing right after Jesus has gone to heaven, basically, right the beginning of the early Christian church. So that is our time period for the first seal. And if we look at the history of the early Christian church, if you turn to Acts 2, you probably don't even have to turn there. What happened in Acts chapter 2? Pentecost, right? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. How many people were converted in one day? 3,000 converted in one day, and then... How far did the gospel spread in that short amount of time after that? Almost the entire known world, right? So in a few short years after the time of Christ, the gospel, I mean, Jesus went from a name barely known at all to the gospel spreading to the entire world in basically a single generation. And that's without the use of television and radio and airplanes. (laughs) <laughs> you know is where everybody went by foot or by ship or by donkey, right? Or camel or something, you know, uh transportation. So the description that we see here of this uh this white horse conquering is the most accurate description of the early Christian church that you could possibly find. So with that in mind, what would be the second seal? Let's read the second seal. Revelation chapter 3. Chapter 3. Verse 3. I'm sorry. I'm tired. You'll have to forgive me. Second seal is verses 3 and 4. So someone read chapter 6, Revelation 6, verse 3 and 4. Mike, do you want to read that? Okay. Okay. If uh, these horses are representing a church, the Church of Christ, as we've uh, established in the, seal, the first seal, and the white horse represented purity, what does the red horse represent? Blood, right? And we can see by the description, um, there's a, it takes away the peace from the earth, people are killing one another, there's a great sword, this does not look like a pure church, does it? And it's, uh, of course you know me, I love history, so, uh, if you look at, uh, the history of the early Christian church, you find, first of all, a very pure church, and then you find corruption starting to slowly creep into the church. Uh, you find around, um, between 100 AD to 323 A.D., uh, you find a shift in the Christian Church where uh, little bits of compromise began slowly creeping in. Um, you also see uh, persecution not only of like the heathens persecuting the Christians, like had been before, but you start seeing Christians persecuting other Christians. Because they don't believe quite the same. Um, splits over what uh which manuscript of the Bible is the is the best one to use. Um, splits over uh what what was really the divinity of Christ. Um, and you know, a lot of these things started splitting the churches and they started persecuting each other. Rather than saying, well, we're Christians, right? We believe in Christ. They, well, you're going to go to hell because you believe that, you know. And back and forth, and you see fights disrupting inside the church itself. Um, and uh, it's a really sad, sad phase of history, but that is what was happening during the century uh, after Christ, the second second century after Christ. You want to say something, Jim? It was a time of trouble. Yes, it is. It's very true. It was a a precursor. It's interesting if you look at the history of the world during that time, the world itself was in a time of trouble too. Um, You had the Rome was starting to crumble. It was starting to divide. You had the Rome division into the western and the eastern sides. Um, You have invasion from the Vandals and the Goths. And a lot of destruction going on. Um, a lot of things were happening during that same time period. And so you can imagine just the full upheaval of both the world and how it would affect the Christian church. Uh, that was caught in the middle of all that. Trying to be, um, trying to have as little persecution as possible. But yet uh, trying to deal with everything going on at once. So we come to the third seal. The third seal doesn't look any better than the second one. Someone read verses five and six. Revelation chapter six, verse five and six. This is the third seal. So we see more symbolism here, right? Now instead of a white horse or a red horse, we have what? A black horse and uh what does black symbolize in scripture death darkness darkness really right the absence of light right so you have darkness and superstition and uh, you'll notice in the the next century uh, it's actually really between the years of uh 323 and 538 is when major corruption and darkness crept over the church. Now, when I say the church, I'm talking about the Christian church at large, um, over worldwide. Uh, this was during the time that Constantine began to rule, uh, and he said, I'm a Christian. I'm I'm tired of persecuting Christians, so I'm going to become a Christian. And if you want to be part of my government, you have to be a Christian too. And so, in order to do this, he had to make the pagans happy. So he enacted what we know as one of the very first Sunday laws for Christianity. Uh, he commanded all the churches to rest and worship on Sunday instead of Saturday. And uh, in the process, he says, you know, we've got all these beautiful uh, pagan worship centers that we've been using for, you know, eons and they're beautiful they've got gold and jewels and like all the wealth of Rome is in these temples we don't want to get rid of them so let's turn them into Christian churches and let's just rename the statues and uh, so idol worship crept into the church and at first they were like well these statues are just to you know because people can't read so it's just to help you visualize what they're supposed to look like but after a while they started saying well you know what, what's wrong with praying to them? So they start praying to these uh, idols, and uh, really, you see in a very short time, the word of God is squelched. The darkness and the superstition began to reign because people were not reading God's word for themselves. And uh, just a serious period of darkness. At the same time, in the rest of the world, you also have destruction going on. Attila the Hun lived during this time, and, um, barbarians began to conquer, uh, Rome, and, uh, in the process, I find this so interesting, but, um, in the process, they, if they came upon a Christian who was keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, who was not part of the main organized church, they... Very rarely did them harm these barbarians when they would come in, but they would totally ransack anybody else. Um, and I like to, uh, I like to uh, think of that as part of this verse where it says, "Her uh, not do not hurt the oil and the wine." What does oil represent in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit was still present even in that darkness and superstition there were still people who were staying true to god's holy word and keeping the seventh day sabbath um, and not worshiping idols and uh preserving the pure and holy scriptures that we have today any other thoughts on the third seal all right we're gonna go to the fourth seal then i hope i'm not boring you with all my history I I love this stuff. So fourth seal is verses seven and eight. Someone read Revelation chapter six, verse seven and eight. Glenn, do you want to read that? Thank you, Glenn. So we have this fourth seal, and we have what color of the horse now? Pale. If you look at that uh, Greek word for pale, did anyone notice what that word meant? Did you see that Greek word in your lesson? Ashen gray, the color of what? It was the color of a decomposing corpse. Okay? That's not just the color of death. This is the color of the corpse that's decomposing after it died. Okay? This is, like, worse than death. Um, that, just a, That was the name of the color. Uh, chloros. Chloros. Um, the Greek word that's used here for this pale horse. I think they were, they were too kind when they translated it into English. <laughs> they called it pale. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can almost imagine this like ashen color, okay? Uh, and uh, you can only imagine the description of a church that would come with this color. Um, a church that is basically spiritually dead. Uh, and if you look in history, uh, the next uh, thing that happened in history was around the time of 538, when the Senate of Rome completely dissolved, uh, Rome, uh, the last pretend emperor who was trying to hold Rome together, his name was Justinian, he said, Rome's gone, uh, the bishop of the church of Rome has more power than I do, uh, and... Uh, has more say in this world than I do anyway. So I am just going to turn over my throne to the Bishop of Rome and let him be ruler of Rome. And so you have the Bishop of Rome who was basically the head of the church. We know him today as as the Pope, but back then he was called the Bishop. Uh, he became not only the religious ruler of the church, but the political ruler of the world. Um, and, of course, it started first just over Rome, but eventually spread to the entire world. And you have a period that we know today in history as the Dark Ages. Uh, the Dark Ages, really, if you look at history, what happened during that period was, first of all, they squelched the Bible. They made it illegal to ever read the Bible unless you were a priest or uh, someone in authority in the church. And then uh the Bible was only in Latin, so you had to know Latin to even read it, which was a dead language then. Um, it was no longer used. And in the process of squelching that, they also squelched science and art. If you look in history, um, our some of our famous um, scientists, um, really the best scientists started popping up during the time of the Reformation, which was the next period, because any scientist who said anything against the Pope was killed. So let's say there was a scientist that was studying. He was doing his mathematical calculations, and he said, and this actually happened, he said, the earth is round, right? (laughs) And guess what happened to the scientist? The Pope killed him. Because the Pope says, no, the earth is flat. So because the Pope says the earth is flat, then the earth is not round, and I don't care what science says, you're dying. And uh, that was the end of science, right? And that's just one example that we know about. There were many examples like that that happened during the time of the Dark Ages. So you have um, basically everything as far as a developing world was squelched because the Bible was squelched. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, Columbus was actually during the next period, uh, during the Reformation, um, and they're the ones that made it out alive, because the ones before the Reformation all died. But uh, yes, it, it's really sad um, what was happening, and it was because the root cause was the Bible was squelched. And without the Bible, you can't have a development of culture and science. And without that freedom of thought and that freedom of religion, um, those things cannot be uh, developed. And um, so you have a dark ages, not only for the church, but for the entire world. And of course, especially dark for those who were pure to God's faith. Yes. Yes. What does it say in here? One-fourth of the earth. Yes. God still had his hand in history, even during the darkest hours of this earth's history, during the dark ages. So then we have the fifth seal. So someone want to read verses 9 through 11? Jada, do you want to read that? No? Grandma, do you want to read that? Okay. Okay. So this fifth seal, you see uh, souls of the martyrs under the altar. Now this, uh, I, I'm sure you're all familiar with this, I don't even have to tell you, but uh, this verse, this passage is often misconstrued to say, see, here's proof that when you die, you are still alive in heaven or somewhere else um, until Jesus comes. Because here you see these souls under the altar and they're all crying saying, Lord, avenge our blood. Right? Is that really true? That's right. In uh, the book of in the book of Genesis, right? God told Cain, "The voice of your bo- your brother's blood is crying from the ground." Uh, the, it's the blood, right? The blood that was slain, uh, that was shed when the martyrs were slain. God does not forget it. It's there, crying out to Him for amen. And uh, even if you did try to take that passage as proving that you know when you die you go to heaven, it doesn't look like they're very happy, <laughs> does it? I mean, does it look like they're in heaven and in, you know peace or whatever? No, they're they're under the altar crying out for vengeance. Like that's that's not a really happy place to be. So um, I'm very thankful for the rest of the Bible that uh, helps us to understand this passage, but. The promise in this, I love the promise, says, rest, that's the other thing, rest, right? Rest, rest a little while longer, because their retribution is coming, right? Vengeance is coming. It will be a little while longer. And uh, if you look at the time uh, period, towards the end of the Dark Ages, you have the Reformation beginning, right? Around, usually around the 1400s. Um, and that's when you start to see science coming back up again, like uh, Christopher Columbus, you know, um, who when he sailed and didn't fall off the earth and came back with his tail, was not killed for going against the church, right? Um, you have uh, the Bible being translated into English, into German, into... Uh, Swiss into all these other languages, so the people, for the first time, could read the Bible again. And granted, there was still persecution uh, during this time for a little while longer, um, and the persecution continued until through the seventeen hundreds, so another three hundred years. But through the persecution, God's word spread like wildfire, and no one could stop it. And uh, amazing, um, amazing things began happening because of this rise of the Reformation, the rise of the Word of God. Arts came back in. Some of our best music uh, began coming back in. Uh, the class, some of the old classical music that we still have today, was because of the Reformation. Um, all of these things happening, not just in the church, but because of the, because of God's Word. Uh, Coming back in, you see the whole world benefiting from this. So then we have the sixth seal, right? This is my favorite part, because I'm going to read you some stories. (laughs) But we had a lot. We had a lot. Yes, millions. Millions of martyrs who were destroyed for their faith. Sweet. So it even says in there, right? They're sleeping. (laughs) Rest a little while longer. Yes. The souls under the altar are still asleep. Yes. Thank you, Jim, for making that point. Yes. Rest a little while longer. Sleep a little while longer. The millions, you know, um, it's sad. If you look at the persecution that happened during the Dark Ages, when they would go out to persecute, they would often just get the soldiers would be given orders. Don't bother even asking if they're a heretic or not. Kill them all because God will know his own. And so even if you were true to whatever the the church was telling you to do at the time and not standing true to God, you still had a risk of being killed. Because even if they suspected that you might have read a Bible once in your life, they would still kill you. Um, And... uh, they were right the lord knew his own but it wasn't the ones that they thought it was <laughs> but yes we have millions of martyrs during that time who were who were killed for their faith so the sixth seal uh we're going to look at revelation 6 verses 12 through we're going to read half of the seal first uh 12 through 13 12 and 13 would you like to read that verse 12 and 13 so, we've got some definite signs here, right? We have what? First one is an earthquake. The second one is the sun darkened, right? And the third one is moon turned blood, and what's after that? The stars fall, right? So, I would like to read to you some things that happened. The first one was in the year 1755. What happened in 1755? The Lisbon earthquake. Um, if if we're following our history through as we have, then this earthquake, the sun become black, the moon blood, the stars fall, all of this should happen after the 1700s, according to, or from 1700s on, according to uh, the history that we've followed so far. The Lisbon earthquake happened in November 1 of 1755, and uh, this is uh, what a writer who actually lived through it said. The great earthquake of 1755 extended over a tract of at least 4 million square miles. Stop and think about that for a minute. 4 million square miles. We're not talking like the San Francisco earthquake. <laughs> this thing's huge, okay? Okay. Its effects were extended to the waters, where many places the shocks were not perceptible. It pervaded the greater portions of the continents of Europe, Africa, and America. So aftershocks from this earthquake were felt in Europe, Africa, and America. How many earthquakes can you think of that you felt it all the way over there? (laughs) But its extreme violence was in Europe. In Africa, the earthquake fell almost as severely as in Europe. A greater part of the city of Algiers was destroyed. Many houses were thrown down in Fez and Minnekes. Multitudes were buried beneath the ruins. Similar effects were felt in Morocco. Or Morocco, sorry. Its effects were likewise felt and it lists a whole list of cities and it says, in fact, All of Africa, the entire continent, was shaken by this tremendous convulsion. In the north, it extended to Norway, Sweden, Germany, Holland, France, Great Britain, and Ireland. This thing's huge. Uh, The city of Lisbon, previous to the calamity, had 150,000 inhabitants, but 90,000 people Died on that day. 90,000 people killed in that earthquake just in the city of Lisbon. <clears throat> in no part of the volcanic region of southern Europe has so tremendous an earthquake occurred in modern times. The sound of thunder was heard underground, and immediately afterward, a violent shock threw down the greater part of the city. In six minutes, 60,000 people died in six minutes. The sea first retired and laid the bar dry, and then it rolled in, rising 50 feet above its ordinary level. The mountains of Arabida, Estrella, Julio, Marvin, and Sintra, being some of the largest in Portugal, were impetuously shaken as if from their very foundations. Some of them opened at their summits, which were splint and rent in a wonderful manner, huge masses of them being thrown into the subjacent valleys. Flames came out of the mountains, which were supposed to have been electric. They also saw smoke, but the vast clouds of dust may also have given rise to the appearance. The great area of the Lisbon earthquake is very remarkable. Spain, Portugal, Africa, and the entire Europe, and even clear in the West Indies, felt the shock on that same day. A seaport at St. Ubes, about 20 miles south of Lisbon, was entirely engulfed. (laughs) And then it continues on. In the city of Morocco, Morocco, I can't even say it, in Africa, the inhabitants of 8 or 10,000 people with all their cattle were swallowed up, and the earth closed up after them." Just there's absolutely no other earthquake on record that comes to this seismic proportions as the one that happened, and it continues on. I'm not going to read them all, but uh, just incredible uh, what happened during that earthquake. you know, just if you sit there with a map and look at the picture of the world and see all the areas that were covered by this earthquake, it's just, it just blows you away. So then you have the darkening of the sun. Anyone know when that happened? May 1970, 1780, so about 25 years later. The dark day. That's what it was called. The dark day happened, uh, was actually recorded here in New England in the United States. The obscuration began about 10 o'clock in the morning and continued till the middle of the next night. So here's how it started. In the month of May 1780, there was a terrific dark day in New England where all faces seemed to gather blackness and people filled with fear. There was great distress in the village where Edward Lee lived Men's hearts were failing them for fear that the judgment day was at hand, and all the neighbors flocked around a holy man who spent the hours in earnest prayer for his distressed neighbors. It came between the hours of ten and eleven in the morning, and continued in till the middle of the next night. The degree to which this darkness arose was different in different places, but in most parts of the country it was so great that people were unable to read common print, they were not able to tell the time of day by their clocks or watches, they could not eat or manage their business without the light of a candle. At 10 in the morning. In some places, the darkness was so great that persons could not even see to read in the open air. The extent of this darkness was very remarkable. Our intelligence in this respect is not so particular as I wish, but from accounts that I've received, it has seemed to extend all over the New England states. It was observed as far east as Portland, Maine. To the west, we hear it reaching clear to Connecticut and Albany. To the south, it was observed along the sea coast, and to the north, as far as our settlements extend. It is probable that it extended much beyond these limits in some directions, but exact boundaries cannot be ascertained by any observations I have been able to collect. With, in regard to its duration, it continued for at least fourteen hours, and, it is probable, it was not exactly the same in every part of the country. The appearance and effects tended to make the prospect extremely dull and gloomy. Candles were lighted in the houses. The birds, having sung their evening song, disappeared and became silent. The c- Fowls retired to roost. The cocks were crowing as at the break of day. Objects could not be distinguished, and everything bore the appearance and gloom of night. Incredible. Um They even, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with John Greenleaf Whittier, right? Very uh, famous poet. I want to read you the poem he wrote about the dark day, because he lived through it. "'Twas on a mayday of the far old year, 1780, that there fell, over the bloom and sweet life of spring, over the fresh earth and the heaven of noon, a horror of great darkness like the light, in the day of which New Orleans sogless tell, the twilight of the gods, the low-hung sky, was black with ominous clouds, save where its rim was fringed with a dull glow, like that which climbs, the crater's sides from the red hell below. Birds ceased to sing, and all the barnyard fowls roosted, the cow at the pasture bars. Lowed and looked homeward, bats on leather wings flitted abroad, the sounds of labor died. Men prayed, women wept, all ears grew sharp, to hear the doom blast of the trumpet shatter. The black sky, the dreadful face of Christ, might look from the rent clouds, not as he looked. A loving guest at Bethany, but stern as justice and exorable law. Fascinating. Then the after the darkness lifted at midnight of may nineteen seventeen eighty, seventeen eighty, the moon turned red as blood. So as all the, the sun darkened the moon turned to blood, it happened at the exact same time. It says the phase of the moon proves that there was absolutely an impossibility of the eclipse at that time. Whenever on this memorable night the moon did appear, it had the appearance of blood. So they looked at it, and it was not during the time of a normal eclipse. This was not a solar eclipse that caused the dark day. It was just simply darkness that was completely inexplainable. And then, of course, we got one more. We only have a couple of minutes, but I have to tell you this. November 13, 1833, just about, uh, what is that, 40 years later? What happened? November 13, 1833. So I'll read you a few testimonies from different people. At the cry, look out the window. I sprang out of a deep sleep and with wonder saw the east lighted up with dawn and meteors. I called my wife to behold, and while roving she said, See how the stars fall? That is a wonder, I replied, and we felt in our hearts it was a sign of the last days. For truly the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And how did they fall? Neither myself nor any of my family heard a report. And were I to hunt through nature for a simile, I could not find one so apt to illustrate the appearance of the heavens as what John used in the prophecy before quoted. It rained fire, said one of my neighbors. It was like a shower of fire, said another. Another said it was like large flakes of falling snow before a coming storm or large drops of rain before a shower. I admit the fitness of these for common accuracy, but they come far short of the accuracy of the figure used by the prophet. The stars of heaven fell unto the earth. They were not sheets, nor flakes, nor drops of fire, but they were what the world understands by the name of falling stars. And one speaking to his fellow in the midst of the scene would say, See how the stars fall? And he who heard would not pause to correct the astronomy of the speaker any more than he would reply, the sun does not move. No one to tell him, the sun is rising. The stars fell, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. So I want to read to you one more real quick. The Most Sublime Phenomenon of shooting stars, which the world has furnished any record, was witnessed throughout the United States on the morning of the 13th of November, 1833. The entire extent of this astonishing exhibition has not been precisely ascertained, but it covered no inconsiderable portion of the earth's surface. The first appearance was like that of fireworks, of the most imposing grandeur, and covering the entire vault of heaven with myriads of fireballs resembling skyrockets. Their core were bright, gleaming, and incessant, and they fell as thick as the flakes of the early snows of December. To the splendor of this celestial exhibition of the most brilliant skyrockets and fireworks of art bear less relation than the twinkling of the most tiny star to the broad glare of the sun. The whole heaven seemed to be in motion and suggested to some the awful grandeur of the image employed in the apocalypse upon the opening of the sixth seal when the stars of heaven fell into the earth even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. After collecting and collating the accounts given in all the newspapers of the entire country, and also in numerous letters addressed to either of my scientific friends, the following seems to be the leading facts attending this phenomenon. The shower pervaded the entire North America. Having appeared equal splendor from the British possessions in the north to the West India islands in Mexico in the south, from the 61 degrees of longitude east of the American coast, Quite to the Pacific Ocean on the west. Throughout this immense region, the duration was the same. The meteors began to attract the attention by their unusual frequency and brilliancy from 9 p.m. till midnight, and were most striking appearance from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. They arrived at their maximum at many places around 4 a.m. in the morning and continued until rendered invisible by the light of day just incredible you know when we see a meteor shower today you know you might see like 10 or 15 stars fall in an hour right (laughs) and uh, we consider that a pretty good shower um and you only see you know like maybe for an hour and you know it'll be an hour on the west coast and an hour on the east coast you know it just kind of travels over but this was nothing like that this was literally like fire raining from the sky Like, all the stars were falling at once. And you could see it over the entire area all at once. The entire North American continent. So, if those were the fulfillment of the first half of the sixth seal, what is the second half of the sixth seal? Jesus comes. And where do we live in this time? in the sixth seal. And my friends, Jesus is coming soon. Are you ready?